Welcome back to episode 39 of Bitcoin Magazine Live. I have returned. I did not get frozen solid out in an undisclosed location far north of me, but not north of the border. Thank you guys for tuning in last week. We have a really exciting episode this week and a really fun guest to kick things off. But before we do that, I want to remind everyone, or unfortunately let you know, uh, if you have not already, the tickets to Bitcoin 22 prices have gone up. We have warned you about this time and time again. The code YTMAG will still get you 10% off if you have not bought your tickets yet. I highly recommend because prices will just continue to go up and the FOMO that will set in will drive you absolutely insane, almost as bad as not buying Bitcoin the first time you heard about it. But I digress, and I'm excited to introduce my guest today, Nick Newman, the founder and CEO of Casa. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Hugh, thanks for having me. So Nick, obviously with everything going on north of the border, uh, I don't want to spend too much time rehashing those details, but over the last, I'd say, 72 hours, we've seen things escalate to a point where self-custody has become the norm. We saw Marty Bent on Tucker Carlson last week discussing this. We see it now being conversed by, I'd like to say, just say normies, people who aren't even involved in Bitcoin are starting to hear this term. I'd love for you to define it just for our audience and anyone listening. What does self-custody mean? Yeah, so self-custody really means that you are being your own bank. That's kind of the, the easier way to think about it. So a custodian is somebody that holds some asset for another person. So our world for the last you know, few hundred years has all been about banks being custodians of people's money. So your bank has your dollars or your Canadian dollars or your pesos, whatever fiat currency you've been using, your bank holds that for you. And whenever you want to use it, you ask them, hey, can I send a transaction to this person? Or can I spend money on my credit card? And Generally, uh, at least in the Western world, they approve it. And now what we've seen with Canada is that's not necessarily a, a good assumption anymore. And I think that one of the questions that we get asked, have been asked over the last three plus years of CASA's existence is, do people really need to care about self-custody when we live in a system where there's banks with perfectly adequate security and there's exchanges like Coinbase who have invested a lot in their security and they're not sketchy, et cetera. And, you know, I think that the answer to that has always been this kind of tenuous slightly conspiracy theory sounding, yeah, because financial censorship isn't necessarily limited just to dictator-led countries. And everybody kind of waved that off until last week when suddenly everything accelerated way faster than probably any of us conspiracy theorists could have even guessed. And, you know, we've got Canada using their emergency powers to lock people out of their bank accounts. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because to your point, it's as though these conspiracy theories that we would laugh at or the notion of not being able to access your money or being told, no, tell these people that I don't like or that have values or think a certain way that they can't access their money. Uh, I heard a very interesting quote, which was during the 
the height of the Black Lives Matter protests. Not one time did Donald Trump or any of these political leaders in America ever attempt to shut down people's bank accounts, attempt to shut down their access to information. And here we are seeing essentially a, a completely different regime north of the border doing our, our worst fears uh, and having them be realized. Can you talk a little bit about how or what steps people can take and, and how, for example, CASA helps you to be your own bank and self-custody your Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, well, one thing that I think is important to point out before we get, I'm happy to answer that, but before we get to that, one thing that I think is important to point out is what you said, that President Trump you know, didn't freeze anybody's bank accounts during the BLM protests, which were arguably a lot more violent than what we're seeing in Canada today. And what that but what, what's interesting about that is right now that the trucker protest, depending on which kind of side of the aisle you are on, the trucker protests are either this great thing for freedom or they're this thing that is you know, terrible and needs to be shut down immediately and everything that the Canadian government can do is, is valid. I think that when you look at this idea of financial censorship, if you are on that more left-leaning side that views the the government taking any steps possible to get rid of this protest as something that is uh, valid. All you need to do is think about the flip side, which is what if President Trump had frozen people's bank accounts during that the BLM protests in 2020. It's a nonpartisan issue. It doesn't take that much of an imagination to flip the script and just think, what would I be thinking if this was being done by the opposite political party? And so that's something that I think is really important here. This, this idea of financial censorship is one that's not partisan. And it's not saying that Trump, I'm not saying Trump did this great thing by not freezing people's bank accounts. It's more, the point is like, you should never be thinking about freezing citizens' bank accounts, especially when they are participating in exercising their right to free speech through protest. And it's just, I think it's, it's a fundamental right in our countries that we're gonna have access to our money and savings and, and leaving or letting that go, both from the citizen side where we aren't openly criticizing governments that do this or from the government side and taking advantage of this to this emergency to grab power. I think it's just, it's something that is unacceptable and we really have to be clear that that's a nonpartisan issue. So to well, answer your, well, yeah, go ahead. We, we, we can uh, put a pin in that question because I, I think you also bring up a very excellent point, which is it doesn't really matter what side of the aisle you sit on. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are. We need to have this openness of differentiating beliefs. It needs to be okay for someone to have a belief different than yours and to have a conversation about that. Right. I think I'm going to misquote Trudeau, um, but if I if I can find it, I will. When he came out with a statement that said these people who are protesting have unacceptable views or an unacceptable perspective, these are some numbers that just denounce what he says. The total Canadian population is about 75, 76% vaccinated when I checked this data last weekend. The trucker population in Canada is over 90% vaccinated. This is not actually a protest about vaccine mandates. It is a protest about government overreach. And when you actually start to break down the things that Trudeau pushes forward versus the things that 
frankly, the truckers are fighting for. They're almost two different sides of this argument. And it really comes down to who has the power and who, frankly, wants to remain in control and dictate to everyone else who and what to do, say, think, and act like. I think now to bring it back to Bitcoin, the opportunity that we have in this community and with this digital currency, if you will, affords us the opportunity to take some of that power away from these centralized entities. We've seen it over the years with different banking banks having control of our monetary policies in this country, abroad, throughout history. But for the first time, we're able to take that out of everyone's hands. Um, yeah, and I think I've seen some really interesting discussion around this because there's some people saying, no, this is a policy issue. There's some people saying, no, just take it from the government by using Bitcoin. And honestly, it's a, it's a little bit of both, I think, in the end. So you really, we should be pushing for policy out of Washington or you know, your respective government hub, depending on what country you live in, that really enables the right to self-custody for people. And that is important because without that, if self-custody is you know, made illegal or something like that, then they, uh, I think that the movement could lose a lot of steam amongst law-abiding citizens. But at the same time, you need to have the actual, you can't just have the laws because laws can be changed. So you also need to have the actual um, I guess it's a threat of exit. You know, there's there's kind of vote and participate in the conversation or exit. And the ability of people to exit into Bitcoin and into self-custody is coded into the cryptographic foundations of Bitcoin. And you are not changing that. And so that capability being there as this exit path for people financially into sovereign money where they are the only ones that hold their keys is really important because it can actually help give some bite and some uh, credence to this idea that we should enable people to self-custody because it's a, a human right to have financial freedom and because it's something that if we don't enable it, there's a good chance people can take advantage of it anyway. And so these are things I think that it, we need to have both of these types of initiatives, both the legal policy side initiative and the fact that we can we know we can use Bitcoin and we need to make it as easy as possible for people to self-custody and as secure as possible for people to self-custody in order to enable that. I totally agree. I think the UX and user experience is is vital because we need to sort of create less, not sort of, we need to create less friction so that it's just easier and easier to transact via peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin, I think you, you touch on a, an excellent point that I kind of want to dive a little deeper into. The idea of what laws are made or can be made in the future is, in a sense, arbitrary. Whatever we desire can just be written into law or what we think or what governments think is best. But if the government starts to make it more difficult for these on and off ramps, such as cash apps and Coinbase's and whatever other exchange that is just as easy as downloading Facebook, creating a new profile, and then boom, here you're off to the races to buy whatever token or Bitcoin that you, your heart desires. What happens though, if instead of stopping or blockading 
these sort of the self custody off ramps, it's the ramps before. What happens to those users who maybe aren't as familiar with peer-to-peer -peer transaction of Bitcoin and get stuck because now, hey, if, if I buy on Coinbase, the government knows and, and I'm just as screwed whether I buy on Coinbase or whether I try to just use my bank account. So I think there's kind of two paths here. You know, you mentioned like total shutdown of government or of, of on-ramps that are regulated by the government. And honestly, I just, I don't think that's going to happen because I think that the industry has gotten big enough and there's enough money in the industry. Coinbase is a publicly traded company. There's massive multi-billion dollar hedge funds with positions in Bitcoin. I think that uh, the industry has gotten big enough that it would be just such a big mistake for the government to shut it down completely from an on-ramp, off-ramp perspective that I, I just don't think they're going to do that. But you know, there are people that are working on solving these problems to allow people to have other ways to on-ramp into Bitcoin without it going through a centralized, you know, exchange like Coinbase. And I think that there, you see a, a few different types of this. There's uh, more recently what Square's working on with TD Dex, which is, you know, more in the regulated side of things, but it's allowing as many people as possible to act as, as on-ramps to Bitcoin. And then there's what some of the guys like local bitcoins are doing where you're you're able to actually exchange cash for bitcoin in a completely peer-to-peer -peer way the thing is a lot of people i think aren't currently comfortable doing that many people don't even really use cash and so it's something that the user experience there would i think need to improve pretty significantly in order to onboard a lot of people to Bitcoin and like continue onboarding the volume that we that we are today, but um, I think from from the perspective of are the main on ramps going to get completely shut down? I just don't think that will happen. It's more likely that the government tries to regulate as much as possible within the ecosystem, and that's where it's on our industry to help educate lawmakers so that they can understand how to put regulations in place that don't significantly breach users' privacy or restrict the industry's ability to grow and create innovation, jobs, value within our country. I think that what you ended with there is so important that, you know, innovation and growth is going to help push our industry, our country, our society forward. And we need to do and take steps to, you know, I'm going to say this very weirdly, but we need to take steps to prohibit the pro we need to essentially not prevent this innovation from occurring. And yet here we are witnessing it in a weird way. Almost these, these rules and regulations that are being put into place are putting us in the Bitcoin community on the spot. This is our time, our opportunity, whether it's figuring out ways to teach people from around the world how to peer-to-peer -peer transact, whether it's, hey, how do you onboard virtually? How do we teach these people how to do this while we are in one country and they are somewhere else? I think it's a great lesson that it will be replicated and it'll be interesting to see how it continues to be replicated around the world. Um, I do now want to unpin my original question and I guess present it to you in a different way of how would you help to explain self-custodying on CASA to someone who uh, is looking for that information right now? Yeah, so the uh, I'll to answer this question, I'll zoom out slightly and just 
explain for somebody who's never heard of self-custody before how this works. You are, when you self-custody your Bitcoin, you are holding the private key to that Bitcoin. And that private key is like a password to unlocking the Bitcoin and allowing you to send it to somebody else. And it's a super long, randomly generated password of letters and numbers. And because it's so long, that makes it impossible to guess, impossible to brute force or try to hack, and impossible to fake. And so it's a very unique cryptographically based type of password that's protecting your Bitcoin. So the thing is, when you are holding your own keys, you and you're not giving them to an exchange or a custodian to hold for you, you are the only person who has control over your Bitcoin. So what that means is that nobody can freeze your bank account because you are your own bank. Nobody can force you to send funds, your Bitcoin, somewhere else, unless they literally come to your house and force you to do that. Right now, with the current banking system, somebody with the right authority or power can basically call up the bank, the bank presses a button on their end, and your account's frozen. It's very easy. When you're self-custodying your Bitcoin, it adds a lot more uh, operational overhead, I guess I would say, to forcing people to give up their money. So one of the problems, that's, that's all the benefits of self-custody and of using private keys. One of the problems, though, is that when you are the sole person who has control over that key, if you lose that key, there's no password reset button. There's no calling up your bank and saying, hey, put this money back in my account because you're the bank. You have the responsibility to protect that key and that Bitcoin. It's a lot like if you have a $100 bill in your pocket and you accidentally lose it on the street. That $100 is gone unless you can go find it. And with Bitcoin, if you lose that private key, it's gone. And, and because of how cryptography works, it's basically impossible to find again. So how does Casa help with this? We were looking at this problem back in 2018 when we first started the company and saying self-custody is and this censorship resistance that it enables is the most important function of Bitcoin as money. It's the first sentence in the, in the Bitcoin white paper is the, that this provides the ability to transact peer-to-peer -peer over the internet without a third-party institution. And so we looked at this problem and said, there's a lot of people who feel anxious about holding their own private keys because they, they can barely keep track of you know, their Facebook password. How are they going to keep track of this private key that's this super long series of letters and numbers or a bunch of words written on a piece of paper? And so what we built is a product that makes it much easier for people to secure their own private keys, to self-custody their Bitcoin, be their own bank. While we've made that significantly easier, we've made it so that you are still the one in control. The way this works is we have a couple of different um, tiers which offer different levels of security. And so at the very basic end, it's a free mobile app where your key, your private key is on your phone and we make it super simple to get started. It's way faster to set up than a Coinbase account. But as you go up in value of Bitcoin, you want more security for that Bitcoin. And so that's where we start to get into having multiple keys protecting one pool of Bitcoin. 
And so when you have multiple keys protecting your Bitcoin, you have resilience against single points of failure. So let's say you lose a key. Well, if you've got three keys protecting your Bitcoin, you only need two of them to send funds. You can lose one key and not have to worry about losing access to all of your Bitcoin. So in that basic setup, you've got one key on your phone, one key on a hardware wallet, like a Trezor or a Ledger or a cold card, and then one key is held by Casa. Now, a lot of people who are using hardware wallets today to protect significant value in Bitcoin, this is a no-brainer because you can go from use, using the same device that you already have, you can go from that single point of failure to a more distributed, more resilient security setup for protecting your Bitcoin. And this just significantly reduces people's anxiety. We hear over and over again from our customers, peace of mind is their favorite thing about using Casa because they can now sleep at night without having to worry about making one mistake and losing all their money. So that's the gist of how Casa works. We've made it super approachable for people to do this. And, and we have a lot of customers who come to us either because they were using a hardware wallet and we're feeling anxious about it, or maybe they were, they were keeping their funds on an exchange and because they didn't trust themselves to self-custody. And now they're self-custodying for the first time with Casa because the product user experience, the support that they can get makes it much safer and easier for them. I want to ask a question on that, that it, it's, it's a dumb question, but I think it just needs to be asked. Sure. I lost my cell phone now. I am a, I, that is one of my three keys. What is now, explain a little bit about the fact that there's one key missing, how the other two keys can operate and how, if possible, the, that missing or lost key can either be rediscovered or recreated, if you will. Yeah. So when you lose your phone, we actually uh, help you back up that key that's on your phone to the cloud. So we encrypt the key and then you back it up to iCloud or Google Drive. And this all happens in the background. So that key that's on your phone is actually sitting in iCloud or Google Drive in an encrypted format. So if anybody were to come across it, they wouldn't be able to make any use of it. But let's say you lose your phone. You can get a new phone, log into Casa, log into iCloud, and that will pull that private key down from iCloud, take the encryption key from your Casa account, decrypt it and save it on your phone again. And so you actually don't have, in, in that scenario, all you need to do is replace your phone. And if you still have access to those two accounts, it's like a, a two-factor authentication there. You can actually just recover that key without having to worry about any other steps in the process. Let's say you lost the hardware wallet though. So you lose that hardware wallet, and the first step is you need to get a new one. You get a new hardware wallet, and within the app, you can just say, hey, I lost my hardware wallet, and the app will then walk you through the next steps for you to take to replace it. You'll put the new hardware wallet into the set of three keys, getting you back to three keys total, but there's a process that you need to go through after that. Because anytime you add a new wallet, a new private key to your set of multiple keys, it creates an entirely new wallet. This is how this, this works at the Bitcoin protocol level. Your Bitcoin is still sitting in your old wallet. And so in order to get it into that new whole 
kind of fully secure wallet with three keys, you actually need to transfer it from the old one to the new. And so you'll take your, you'll sit, the app actually walks you through all of this. It creates a transaction. You're signing it with your key on your phone. And then you're also requesting that CASA sign it with our key. So you can always rely on CASA having our key as a backup in case you lose some of your keys. And the, the benefit of this is, you know, we're not going to lose that key, but at the same time, we can't move any funds without your permission because it's only one out of your three or out of your five total keys. So once you get that signature from CASA's key, then you've got two signatures, which is what you need. You need two out of the three. You transfer the funds from the old wallet to the new, and then it's, it's back to full security. Now, when you talk through this out loud, you know, it took me about a minute to explain that. It feels like a lot, but we've, the way that we've built the product experience you don't have to remember any of that because the app walks you through every single step, step-by-step step when you get there and just helps you get that best-in-class security, best practices without you having to really even know what's going on behind the scenes. My fellow clubs, the Bitcoin conference is back. Bitcoin 2022, April 6th through the 9th is the ultimate pilgrimage for the Bitcoin ecosystem. The Bitcoin conference is the biggest event in all of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We're leveling up and making this bigger and better than ever. I'm talking straight to the moon with the four day long festival in the heart of Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This has something for everyone. Whether you are a high-powered Bitcoin entrepreneur, a core developer, or a Bitcoin newbie, Bitcoin 2022 is the ultimate place for you to be with your people and celebrate and learn about the Bitcoin culture. So make sure to go to b.tc forward slash conference to lock in your official tickets and use promo code Satoshi for 10% off. You want more off? Pay in Bitcoin and you'll receive $100 off general admission and $1,000 off whale pass. Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. I love that. And thank you so much, Nick, for walking us through that, because as you mentioned it, yes, it, it was a lot, but I think it's important to take the time and have that explained because sometimes like a, many of us will just read it and it'll go over our heads. So thank you for walking us through that. Totally. Um, I, do, I do want to ask, because it's been presented now a few different times for, by people in the chat uh, and even my producer, Chris, I'm going to sum up all these questions under one umbrella. KYC, how obligated is CASA under the current KYC laws? Are you guys, if Canada turns around and asks, I, I don't even know if you guys technically operate in Canada, but if the US government, for example, were to turn around and ask, I, we need to know uh, what of your what of your customers are doing this. Is there an internal discussion on, hey, for these reasons we give it, or is it just a blank, absolutely not? Where does CASA sort of fall, or how would you handle that situation? So CASA doesn't even, we don't KYC our customers. So under the current laws, you are not required to KYC customers as a self-custodial wallet provider. And so we take full advantage of this because we want to protect our customers' privacy. And we don't, you don't have to go through KYC to sign up. You can sign up with an anonymous email if you want. That's not even your 
your normal email and pay with Bitcoin. And we would have nothing more than that email to actually identify you. And so we've tried to build this in a way that people can only, only need to provide the limited amount of information that they want to provide. Some people want to give us more info because we're when they give us more info, we're able to provide a more premium experience. So like, for example, at the at our higher tiers, people can set up inheritance. And, you know, for some of that stuff, they do need to provide some information that can help us know who their heirs are to make sure that if the person passes away, we can work with their heirs to help them access their Bitcoin. But uh, this is really a user choice, right? So for people who are worried about this, they have the ability to be fully pseudonymous within the Casa ecosystem. And that's a really important part of our product. So um, it's, it's something that we, you know, we think is very important from a privacy perspective. And we really want to work as hard as we can to preserve that capability for people to sign up completely privately with Casa. Thank you for uh, the work you do, not only for your customers and clients, but also in, in helping hopefully new clients and customers to learn and understand what you guys offer. Totally. Um, I kind of want to get a sense from you. We talked a lot right now about government regulations, uh, specifically north of the border. Um, we hear a lot about legislative efforts here in our country right now. Are there certain regulations that you or your team is paying close attention to or nervous about in any regard? I mean, the, the one, one of the ones that we're paying attention to is just some of the work that the FATF is doing right now. So the FATF is a inner or non-governmental body that is um, governed by, it has representatives from different countries and they make financial regulations that then countries can choose to adopt or not. And one of the regulations that they are pushing right now that's in draft form is about requiring people to identify their self-custody addresses, for example, when they are withdrawing from an exchange. And so this would you know, identify essentially KYC self-custody wallets at a regulatory level. It's something that we think is a, a terrible mistake and, because it's, it's directly against people's financial privacy and, and individual sovereignty. And it's something that we're keeping an eye on and also really looking to the broader community as well as ourselves to help educate lawmakers around the world about why this is a mistake. Because like I said, countries have the choice of whether they are going to adopt these regulations or not. And so it's something that we think is very important for lawmakers in the US to realize hey, this is, this is actively harmful against our citizens' privacy. And this is not one of the regulations that we should adopt from, from what the FATF is working on. So that's one thing that, that we're paying attention to right now. And the, over the last year, you know, really since the infrastructure bill started happening, there's been a big push from our industry to get more active in D.C. with education with lobbying efforts and i think that's really important and very timely because as we've seen the regulation around cryptocurrency is just increasing and, and really heating up and so this is the time for us to 
get active talking to our senators, our congressmen, and to really uh, push for them to understand where we come from as an industry and as a community. We're not a small community anymore. There's significant value and, and dollar value behind the Bitcoin community. And so putting that to work in showing that we can have an influence, an effect on elections, on policy is, is important. And I think there's a lot of Bitcoiners that say, you know, fuck the government. We don't, we'll just do what we want. We don't want to deal with them. And, and I think that's short-sighted because if we were thinking about the long game, about bringing as many people into Bitcoin as possible, we would want to enable that by having friendly regulations in our country. And so having that education and, and making those pushes from whether it's grassroots or through dedicated um, institutions like Coin Center, I think it's, it's super important. No, that, I mean, that absolutely makes sense that a, a company that's whole basis is helping people to self-custody, is keeping a very close eye on any sort of self-custody laws and legislations um, going into place. It's almost as if, in, in a very classic sense, people that know nothing about an industry are making decisions about an industry that will end up causing more harm than good. Right. Yep. And I think it's, it's we underestimate how little a lot of the people who are making our laws have historically understood how the technology and how the industry works. And we're starting to see more of our Congress people getting educated. You've got Tom Emmers, who does a lot of work in the House. Ted Cruz in the Senate is starting to get a lot more active around Bitcoin and around personal rights. And so I think that the, there, and I know there's others as well that I'm that I'm leaving out, and there's even some that are that are running for election for the first time who are very friendly to Bitcoin, like Erica Rhodes. And so these are people who we need to lean into working with because they have taken the time to understand, whereas a lot of people haven't. And I, I think that's working with those people, leaning into that is the first step towards educating the broader group of within Congress. Absolutely. We're, we're starting to see, I think, this new class of uh, Congress hopefuls starting to turn to Bitcoin, whether it's because they genuinely believe it, whether they want the votes, that remains to be seen. Um, I do want to sort of give you the opportunity. You, in this scenario, you are able to sort of create or get rid of any legislation that you see unfit for the broader crypto market, what change would you make? I, I think the, the biggest one that I'm focused on continues to be around people's right to self-custody and to have financial privacy and freedom with their money. This is some, I mean, private keys and, and cryptography have been around since the seventies, but Bitcoin really changed the game in terms of making them usable for money. And that really introduced them to people more broadly, gave consumers, individuals, a reason to use private keys. If you go way back in banking's history, we as a society used to do a lot more of this self-custody. You know, people would keep 
coins or cash themselves, but over time, it's really gone away because of the convenience of using digital money. And with that convenience of digital money, we also introduced all of these risks around people being able to shut down your bank account with the press of a button. Now Bitcoin's come along and it's given you the convenience of digital money with the security and freedom of self-custody. And we as a nation cannot hamstring ourselves in allowing our citizens to take advantage of that freedom. The U.S. is the country of freedom, right? And I think that I'm not alone in saying that the idea of Bitcoin fits so well with the idea of the United States. And our government should recognize that and should realize that leaning into this technology will give us huge advantages over the next few decades and maybe even more. And so when you have countries like China who are have leaned all the way into a central bank digital currency where they have, it's a digital currency where they have full control at the central bank level, which is one step further than what we have today in the US, right? Like at least right today, the regulators have to call the banks and tell them to shut off your account. Whereas with a CBDC, they just, the government presses the button themselves. In a world where China is doing that and honestly is a whole lot better than the US at playing this centralized game, right? They have been a centrally planned, more efficient centralized society for a lot longer than the US has. What the US has been good at is leaning into capitalism and decentralization. And let's continue to lean into that, realize what we're good at, lean into that decentralization, and lean into the fact that people, individual freedoms matter in our country. So if I was going to really be pushing some sort of regulation or law, it would be to outline very specifically people's rights to use their own private keys, people's rights to self-custody and have that financial freedom. I love that. And I think as, as my producer, Chris, put it, uh, Bitcoin is as American as apple pie. And you guys are not wrong. The, the ideals and values of Bitcoin fall very much in line. However, where I kind of challenge what you say and push back is a lot of American dominance has come through the control of the global financial market and system. And I think this decentralization of the financial markets for the first time ever, there's no real example of a purely decentralized financial market, historically speaking. And I think there is a fear or concern that stems from that. I, I'm curious to know what your sort of solution to that hurdle is. How, how would you go about helping, to, helping those with the power to make those decisions see, the way, see things the way we see it? Because it, it almost feels as though those closest to the money printer have the most to lose. And as a result, will hold on tightest to the current system. And, at, and if things play out the way we think they will with game theory, that could lead the U.S. to being one of the last adopters. But I'd love your thoughts on sort of how we, how we can push them in that direction. Before yeah, so I, I agree with you that the U.S. has benefited 
significantly from the ability to have the dollar as the world reserve currency. Um, I think that we've seen over the last few years, whether they like it or not, American dominance is waning. Russia and China are starting to make their own moves, starting to, you know, China's got their CBDC, Russia is pulling further away from the US. And I, I, th I just think that the dominant, the era of American dominance is really waning here. And we're not going to bring it back by doing the same thing that we've been doing. And so it's going to take a little bit of, of shining some sunlight on this issue and taking a very objective look at what's been happening, where things are going, and realizing that we need to do something different if we are going to continue to succeed as a country. And it may mean that we, we, do, we never have the dominance to the level that we've enjoyed over the last 50 years. But it could also mean that we have still have some stake and influence in the world. And it does not become a world that is fully dominated by the more centrally planned, more efficient East as China kind of is becomes more of a rising nation. And so this is something that I think we have to be very realistic about. And I think you're right that the people who are in power today are highly disincentivized to look at this objectively. But we do have new people who are younger, who are spending the time and, and have less incentives to keep the system as it is today. And they're running for Congress, running for positions where they can have impact. And those people are looking at things objectively, seeing the benefits of using Bitcoin, of leaning into the technology and the freedom that Bitcoin offers. And I think we need to really push behind those people in order to um, enable the or help the U.S. to get over this hurdle. Because you're right, it's going to be tough. It's not going to be an easy transition no matter what. But let's lean into this tech that can at least give us some advantage versus just continuing down this path that we're on of just continually waning U.S. dominance. Uh, you touch on an excellent point too, and you've, you've touched on it a couple of times uh, throughout our conversation in regards to China and their sort of very extreme in the opposite direction stance. We saw them last year ban mining. They years ago banned Bitcoin and in different degrees and variations, and yet people are still underground mining in China. The hash rate recovered to to new highs. The largest fear, I think, of the dominance that China saw in the late 2010s in that decade, as far as Bitcoin mining goes, and the hash rate being a majority held within China, everyone was so concerned. They're just going to turn around and control Bitcoin. And then all of a sudden, this whole decentralized idea that we have is gone because the Chinese government holds it. Well, that did not come to fruition. In fact, the exact opposite happened. Is there a concern or fear that is populating in pop culture, if you will, or in Bitcoin pop culture, that you're kind of looking at the China model of, 
yes, you're absolutely right. This is a valid concern. However, it could literally become negated with one or two things happening. Is there something like that in your in the forefront of your mind? So can you clarify just at the end there when you're saying, uh, are you saying, are you worried that the same thing that happened in China could happen in the US or what are you, what are you asking? Sorry. More, more in the sense of there was this ongoing fear that because more than 50% of the hash rate was located in China, that China could in turn turn around and take over the miners. Is there something going on, whether it's Russia introducing it as a legalized currency, India taxing it an insane amount, or the fact that miners are coming into the US at a rate much faster than any other country. Are there, is there a, something that's brewing that you're kind of, that people are nervous about or have expressed concerns where to you it's like, this is, this is not in any way a concern to me. It will go away as fast as it came up. Um, I don't think I have a, a great answer for you there, if I'm being honest, I, I think that what what I do know is we will continue to face challenges at the government level for Bitcoin over the next decade, probably. And for every challenge that we see, there's also something good happening that supports Bitcoin. So China banned Bitcoin mining completely. That ended up causing Bitcoin mining to become more decentralized and a lot of mining coming to the US. Um, People are worried about mining energy FUD and the amount of electricity that it takes. But there's very good arguments that say that Bitcoin mining could actually incentivize and provide capital for more build out of renewal, renewable energy and accelerate the transition to renewable energy for our society. You've got places like El Salvador adopting it as legal tender. I think that for every kind of bad news on a geopolitical or just existential level, you've got also good news. And that's how it's going to be. And it's about the, it's going to be a fight it's going to be, it's not going to just, I think a lot of people say Bitcoin's inevitable and to some extent that's the case, but I think that we should be doing as much as we can to help it along. And um, so I, I don't, I can't point to any one thing that I think this is an absolutely ridiculous concern. But on, on the other hand, I, there's a lot of things that are great that are either going on right now or I'm sure kind of brewing behind the scenes that that we really should be celebrating, pushing, and and educating people about. I love the optimism of your answer where for every every article of bad news that we see, there's an article of good news that we can choose to pay attention to just as well. Um, and, and pay the attention point you- to and share, right? Like sharing that and helping people see that is important. And I, I think the energy FUD one is a great example of this because there's a ton of people saying Bitcoin wastes electricity, it's worthless, et cetera. And we've recently started making change in that conversation by being louder within the Bitcoin community and speaking their language, honestly, to explain why that is either not as big of a problem as they think it is, or it's something that will change over time and will actually become incredibly beneficial. And so 
the not only do we need to pay attention to the positive things, we need to be sharing the positive things and communicating them in a way that people can actually understand it. You know, we we can't there's something great about Bitcoin meme culture and about, you know, us talking within Bitcoin Twitter and everybody kind of is this it's the in crowd, right? And it feels great. But then there's also the important step of communicating to the rest of the world to help educate them and to share the positive news about Bitcoin and help them understand this new technology, just like somebody probably needed to help people understand the internet back when it was first invented. I, I love that call to action as a reminder to everyone listening, every piece of good news you hear, it's on you to share it, whether it's with another Bitcoiner or someone who's a non-coiner. Always, always spread the good word of Satoshi. I do wanna maybe go way, way back and ask you to, to share with us sort of what was the conversation like when you first heard about Bitcoin, who, who or how was it introduced to you? And what was your initial gut reaction? Were you like, oh yes, this is it? Or did you, like a lot of other people think like, hey, this is sketchy, a scam, not touching it with a 10 foot pole? Yeah, I think the first time I heard about it, somebody was, one of my friends was pitching me on Bitcoin mining and it was back in probably like 2013 or 2014 during that one of the big run-ups. And uh, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't really get it. Um, you know, didn't, didn't talk too much about it. And then I actually have a text message that one of my friends screenshotted and sent me from 2014 where I had sent something like Bitcoin crashed, definitely a scam or something like that. And I'm just like, damn it. <laughs> he kept those receipts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he must have really went digging to get that from 2014. But uh, as many people have admitted to, I really kicked myself for not getting involved in Bitcoin that early. But I found it eventually. And I think that was more, it was more like um, end of 2016 when I got back into the whole or not got back into it, but really started actually learning about it. And uh, that was really when my personal Bitcoin journey kicked off. So Lo love that. And I love the fact that you uh, have such a growth mindset to change your mind from calling it a scam to founding one of the leading companies for self-custody. So I mean, I think that there's so many people that um, honestly could tell a very similar story of thought it was a scam or thought it was stupid and then later came around and, and finally took the time to understand it and just whether the situation was right or they just you know they they read enough about it the, the light bulb went on and so this is why I also think we should be very understanding of people who are in the who are no coiners today basically and maybe even people who are you know, throwing shade on Bitcoin for things like its its energy footprint, because instead of viewing these people as necessarily evil people or something like that, it's it can be useful to take the view of, I was maybe in this position one day, or historically, saying that Bitcoin was a scam. And so it took somebody taking the time to explain it to me, for me to, to make that jump. How can we do that for as many people as possible who haven't made the jump yet? And so um, 
yeah, it's, uh, I think it, there's, in the future, I hope there will be a whole lot more people who were no coiners and decided to start a Bitcoin company um, because of the efforts of today's Bitcoin community. I love that. And uh, that is yet another call to action for all of you watching or listening right now, that it is it is on all of us to push it forward. It's not just on one or two individuals in this community to continue to push Bitcoin, its use cases and negating the FUD that's around it. I always will say and will continue to say until I am proven right, because I will be proven right. It, this, is, this is a fact, just not today, but I genuinely believe that the next iteration of clean energy, both capture and utilization of clean energy will come from Bitcoin and specifically Bitcoin mining, because they are most incentivized to find the cheapest, most efficient ways to capitalize on energy. Um, I remember explaining to my little cousin like how a company like Upstream Data is taking the flare that comes off of natural gas mining and utilizing that. And he couldn't comprehend the fact like, wait, you're telling me that for decades on end, we've just been wasting this energy? Like it just yeah, it wasn't 100%. until Bitcoin. But that exactly, it was literally just being wasted in the universe. Um, and so I, I put it on our community that we will figure this out and it will be revolutionary for our society. And it will be very interesting to see what the reaction is by both those in the community and those who are not yet in it. And I say yet, because I think that will be the final, the final straw that will just, everyone will be convinced. You can't, you can't fight it. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, very interesting incentive structures built into Bitcoin and built into Bitcoin adoption from things that we've already seen working where, you know, bull cycles cause FOMO, people invest, and then they've got skin in the game and they decide to learn about Bitcoin and get fully orange-pilled, or whether it's something that we haven't seen fully play out yet, like the, the clean energy argument that you just made, but we fully expect to see it play out over the next five years or so. I think there's there's a lot of really, really interesting social incentives that we will see come from Bitcoin over the next few years. I do want to kind of ask you as well, because I've over the course of meeting with and interviewing so many different people, it almost feels as though not everyone is on the same page of, do we push for store of value or do we push for peer-to-peer transactions? Where is sort of your home for Bitcoin in your mind? Or what is the next place that Bitcoin needs to establish itself properly? I mean, I think both, both of those will become true over the next five to 10 years, right? And the narrative over the last few years has been one that has been overwhelmingly about store of value and about inflation resistance. And people really have kind of ignored this idea of censorship resistance, especially in the, in the U.S. Like the, the vast majority of people talk about inflation and helping solve that problem. And I think that the next few years are going to be, the narrative is going to be one of censorship resistance and of self-custody. And this is really the moment that CASA has been building for, right? We are building to help people understand and make this transition. And so I think that's the first most important transition for, for our community to go through because it's estimated 
uh, as of 2019, so I'm, it's possibly more than that now, that up to 60% of all Bitcoin was held by custodians. And so that's a crazy number. It comes from a, a Chainalysis report in 2019. And Chainalysis has a pretty good idea about this kind of stuff. If you look at Coinbase's Q3 um, uh, like public filing, the, their 10Q, yeah, it says uh, you can do the math and back into it. They had at the end of September about 2.4 million Bitcoin that they were holding. 2.4 million out of the probably like 18 million that are actually not lost today. It's insane. And this is a really important narrative for our community to start educating people on. And I think that's, that's going to be really the first step that we need to take. And what's really interesting is what's going on in Canada today, I think is providing a lot of um, incentive for people to wake up and kind of realize why this is important and hopefully get their Bitcoin off exchanges, get their Bitcoin off of custodial wallets. So that's what I'd really like to see. But I think that to answer your question of store of value versus P2P transfer, it really depends on where, where in the world you are. So we're seeing in places like El Salvador that maybe have less of a developed fintech ecosystem, payments is becoming a bigger and bigger deal. They're actively pushing for this and actively building this into their financial system, which is great to see. Lightning Network has been growing a ton over 2020, the uh, whole of 2021. And we're seeing more and more people getting into this payment side of Bitcoin. But you look at the US and there's a whole lot less incentive for people to be using Bitcoin as a peer-to-peer -peer method of exchange. And so um, in that scenario, I expect that it'll continue to be a censorship resistant, inflation resistant store of value. So it depends on where you are, which narrative will be advancing. But I think that over time, it will come to encompass both of them. Uh, and eventually, you know, the third form of money, which is unit of account. So um, you bring up an excellent point too, where we in America have the privilege of not necessarily having to worry about transacting our Bitcoin because our currency is to a degree stable. It is probably the most unstable it has been in 40 plus years in my entire lifetime, worst inflation we're, we're seeing is at this present moment. Um, I'd love though, to get your sense on where or what, what we see in El Salvador, what that effect looks like for the rest of the world. I mean, most of us are familiar enough with game theory to understand that this is the first domino falling. What do you see sort of, or what would you like to see sort of happen next? Another country either adopted as legal tender or go the route of just legalizing it as currency? I mean, I think you want to see as many countries as possible adopting it as legal tender because that not only helps to spread education and usage of Bitcoin, but it also helps give uh, the early adopters a little more air cover, basically, in terms of allowing them to do this without threat of retaliation from the rest of the world. But I think as far as how it will happen, you know, I would actually argue that one of the big reasons why you don't see the need for using Bitcoin as a P2P payment system in the US is not that 
it's the US dollar is more stable, like maybe that 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 plays into it for sure. But we actually have a much more developed fintech ecosystem. And so you can just use Venmo to send somebody dollars and it's pretty easy. But in some countries around the world, that does not exist. And so you combine that with the fact that yes, the the dollar is more stable and potentially Bitcoin is more stable than whatever fiat currency that people would normally be operating in. And there's a lot more incentive for countries to adopt Bitcoin as a method of payments and as a legal tender. And so I think that you're seeing more uh, of the countries in Latin America really taking a hard look at this. And you know, there, it seems to be spreading there. I think there were some rumors about Russia doing some legalization in some form or another of Bitcoin, which would be very interesting in terms of how the game theory would play out with the US and our current relatively antagonistic stance there. I don't, I have no idea how that would play out. Um, but I think that you'll see it grow more in these smaller countries and eventually, hopefully with the right education and the right policies and people in power, we can help it grow from a legalization perspective uh, or legal tender perspective in the US. But like you said, a lot early in our conversation, I do kind of think that the US will be one of the last to adopt it. It's unfortunate, but uh, our, our worst fears, I think, will be realized in that regard. I do and want I think to... the, the important part is in the meantime, we just need to be making sure that the US policy is as neutral towards or positive for Bitcoin as possible, even if it's even if it's not going to be adopted as like a legal tender, let's not kill it, kill the Bitcoin industry in the US or force it to go overseas. Totally. I mean, we need to give it time to grow. Um, to your point, there's so much money in it at this point. And it's not just everyday people's money. It is the big buyers in, in Wall Street and New York are all of a sudden involved. And what those people will always do is they'll go crying to mommy and daddy in Washington, D.C. Don't mess with my money. Don't mess with this right now. I have too much tied up. I can't afford to have you mess with this. Otherwise, I'm not donating. So for better or worse, in a weird way, you almost we all want to see more adoption out of Wall Street because it gives us this weird protective moat for however long we need to continue to develop Bitcoin out deeper and deeper. Um, I do want to ask you before I let you go, um, as this legislate as legislation continues to get brought up in DC, there seems to be this mixing of Bitcoin and crypto. Uh, could you maybe discuss a little bit of what the key differences that you see are and how you'd like to see this separated in legislation if it's ever brought to that point? So I think I tend to actually take a little bit of a different stance than a lot of, I think, uh, like hardcore Bitcoiners on how I would like to see legislation adopted in Congress. I think that we're already fighting an uphill battle to educate people about Bitcoin and about how this technology works and why it's not going to cause the downfall of the US government if we lean into it positively. To add another wrinkle to that of, oh, but you should not pay, like you should be antagonistic towards Ethereum or something like that. I think just it, it divides our strength within the community at a time when we need to use as much of our voices as possible to be pushing for 
friendly policies towards Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency at large. So for things that are outright obvious scams like Ripple, like um, that's great. SEC should be going after them. But I think that there's a benefit from, the, from realizing the fact that a lot of us, whether you're in Bitcoin or whether you're in Ethereum, whatever, are working together for generally the same goals, which are give people this technology that is based on private keys so that they can actually own their own money or digital assets or whatever. And then let people themselves, let individuals make the decision of where they want to invest their money. Because that's the whole point of being a sovereign individual is that we aren't telling you what to do with your money. That said, I think that we... You know, if you look at the Bitcoin community or you look at the Ethereum community or other communities, we are playing a little bit of different games here. So if you're looking at what's going on in Ethereum Twitter over the weekend, a lot of people are talking about the OpenSea hack. They're talking about NFT security, that kind of thing. The Bitcoin side of things is talking about ge geopolitical overreach by the Canadian government and financial freedom. And so I think that they're, the two communities need to actually realize that they're playing different games and going after different targets here. And Bitcoin is going after the very big goal of providing sovereign store, like a safe store of value, sound money for the entire world. Maybe the Ethereum community is going after more of like a, you know, building decentralized tech and stuff. And they need to kind of stop trying to call themselves ultrasound money and lean into what they're really trying to do around other things besides money. And then the Bitcoiners lean into what we're trying to do around building a better money for the world. But when it comes to policy, let's we're at the broadest level, we are pushing for individual sovereignty. So let's not cut each other off at the knees by adding in all of this kind of oh, proof of stake versus proof of work versus whatever. Like, let's just push for people's ability to be sovereign individuals at the base level. I love that. It, it continues to go back to the main point that we're going to hammer down. Let these technologies develop. Do not inhibit us. Do not step in the way or stop the continued advancement of the broader markets, if you will. I think I do have a similar point of view that there is space for uh, a lot of other projects. I don't think necessarily every single project will last the test of time. Um, yeah, like let know. the free market work it out over time, right? That's all, so many Bitcoiners are, are libertarians, right? Let the free market work it out over time. And if you decide where you want to invest your money and let's push for the most friendly legislation as possible and see where things go over 10 years. And I can... The one thing I know is that Bitcoin is going to be here in 10 years. I can't necessarily say that about anything else, but that doesn't mean that I feel like I need to be waging war within our community in order to help Bitcoin. So, I love that. Peace, not war. Depending on who you're arguing against. Maybe <laughs> war when it comes to financial freedom versus government overreach. Fair enough. Fair enough. I do want to highlight, I believe it has now just premiered. Uh, I, I hate kicking viewers 
out, but uh, be sure to check out. We just dropped a, I'm going to get the title wrong and I'm so sorry, Aaron, because I know how hard Aaron and uh, Natalie Brunel worked on this Go Fund Yourself documentary that they put together, uh, just premiered on our channel. Be sure to get, take a look at that as well. We will also be showing it later in this episode. So uh, stay tuned for that. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Will you uh, be in attendance at Bitcoin 22? Oh yeah, I'll be there. I'm looking awesome. forward to it. Awesome. Uh, what are you most excited for? Is there a speaker that you're excited to hear? You know, I'm just excited to really like be with the broader Bitcoin community and to have, it's a, it's a good mix of like, great conversations that with people that you only see once or twice a year and the fun more kind of you know celebratory aspect of like let's get together and just celebrate bitcoin success since the last time we were together so um i don't know necessarily about a, a specific speaker but it's more just being with the community that i think is going to be a lot of fun i love it i mean you're spot on being in that environment was I can't even really put it to words, but just being around that much bullishness. I mean, in the midst of the pandemic to finally be at an event where masks were not required to be able to have conversations that were hopeful, um, that were positive, pushing the whole community forward. I absolutely loved it. I'm so excited to hear Bukele actually talk in person. Uh, just the way that man behaves online. If he's half as funny as he is online as he is in person, we're gonna we're we're in for a fun little comedy set, if I do say so myself. Yeah, that'll be that'll be a fun one. I'll definitely be watching that one. Um, Nick, I do want to thank you so much for for taking the time to chat with us and and sharing your thoughts as well as just the work Casa is doing. Uh, big fans of Casa, and we'll continue to to update everyone with how you guys progress. Of course. Thanks, Q. It's great to be on. Happy to come on anytime. Thank you, man. Yep. 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 Yep.